Again, that's Micah chapter 5, 1 to 9. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem and Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth, then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the end of the earth. And he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise him against we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword, and the land of Nimrod at his entrances, and he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man, nor wait for the children of man. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations, in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which when it goes through, treads down and tears in pieces, and there is no one to deliver. Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. This is God's word. In our passage, uh, verse 2. Verse 2 is probably the most familiar, it's certainly the most comforting verse. But verse 1 may be its most important. It may seem a little out of place, but it might be its most important. God is speaking, and he sets the stage in verse 1 of all the hopeful words to follow, all the words about the future. And he does this by being immediately realistic about the present. This is a world in which you will have trouble. In this world, you will have trouble. Jesus would go on to say this very succinctly, and here we see it very poetically. It's said like this, a siege is laid against us, against God's people, a siege. And you will recall when I mentioned the Assyrian army, basically every week up to this point of the Assyrian army, they were the kingdom, the military of ancient Near East in the 8th century BC, who happened a love war. They were the first true military nation in history. They just absolutely love war for war's sake. And now they've been creeping ever closer to the borders, the northern borders of Israel. And in fact, in this lifetime, our prophets, they might not, will see this army loot and pillage Israel, deporting God's people from their promised land. In fact, all the commentators agree this is so bad, it's going to be so obvious and and full of deceit that that the first line in verse 1 is meant to be basically sarcastic, where God says, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Don't be like you and I were held at gunpoint or knife point together. Right? And and we're held at gunpoint or knife point, you say to me, Okay, preacher. Let's see you try to talk your way out of this one. 
But you don't actually, you're not actually optimistic that I can't talk my way out of this one. You are being sarcastic in that moment. Say, let's see, let's take your greatest strength, potentially, that's debatable, your greatest strength, and use it to get your way out of trouble. That's what God is saying here. All right, daughter of troops, go to your greatest strength, your military might, and see what you can do to delay or get out of the siege. The situation is hopeless. Hopeless. Last line here, of course, this further. With a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. The ruler here struck with a rod is almost certainly the very last king, the last king of Judah, a man named Zedekiah, whom the Babylonian ruler, known as a different kingdom, King Nebuchadnezzar, blinded Zedekiah by having his soldiers quite literally strike Israel's ruler. On the face with a rod blinding him. Now that's 150 years at least after the Assyrians get to God's people. But then it goes even further, this, this trouble Israel's going to experience. Look at verse 3. Therefore, he shall give, God shall give them up until the time which he was in labor. Has given birth. But we fast forward and we think this maybe has to do with Mary and Jesus, and we probably see that it will. That would mean five different kingdoms the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans will rule, have their thumb on God's people. So just to review verse 1 trouble, that's helpless, and it's long standing. Some of us here this morning can relate to this specific brand of trouble. There seems to be a siege just invading your life. Maybe it's long-standing loneliness. And yet every effort to remedy that seems fruitless. Maybe it's long-standing coldness or conflict in your marriage. And every selfless attempt you make to reach out to your spouse actually backfires on you. Maybe it's a lack of change, spiritual or emotional change in your adult children. That you've worn out your knees in prayer and exhausted every resource. Nothing has happened. Maybe you're stuck in the same job, but no prospect of advancing, no lights at the end of a busy season. Guys, honestly, this, this is the hardest part, the hardest part of being a pastor. To have people with long-standing trouble, hopelessness come to you, whether it's to come to you because of the relationship you have with them or just because of your pastor. And they come and they, they express, I've been in this for so long and I don't know any way out of this and they're looking for someone to rescue them to fix the problem. God is nothing if not realistic here in this opening verse. Life can be terrible in the world dark place. So it's not pessimism we see here, but, but realism. Realistic for a human being to begin by seeing no way out of long-standing trouble in his or her life. Do you guys remember the Chilean miners? Remember that new story? Real people that we followed back in 2010, the autumn of 2010, 33 men trapped beneath 2,000 feet of solid rock. 
The main tunnel closed in on them, the main exit. They ate two spoonfuls of tuna, a sip of milk, and a morsel of peaches every other day to survive. What ultimately rescued them? What ultimately saved them? A decision they made early on that they couldn't save themselves. They stared at the stone wall, and rather than expending energy and precious oxygen, drilling and digging their way out, they together concluded that we're going to actually need someone to penetrate this hopeless situation and rescue us. Otherwise, we're going to die trying. October 13, 2010, having been rescued, men began to emerge. A great grandfather, a 44 year old man who had been planning for his wedding, a 19 year old, just beginning his life as manhood in many respects. All kinds of people emerge. That's who God's speaking to, both in this passage, through this prophet, and this morning to us. Those of us who see realistically that on our own, our long standing trouble that we can't seem to get out of is hopeless. But to such, God promises, number one, a certain hope. And number two, a future hope that will transform us into spreaders of hope. That's what we're going to see this morning. A certain hope, future hope, that will transform us into spreaders of hope. So first let's talk about a certain hope. The hope offered here somewhere around 730 B.C. is certain because it has already taken place as God has said that it would. Begin in verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, when you shall come forth from for me, one who is to be ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. The use of the word ruler is interesting here. You might think, oh, ruler, that's just a, that's a throwaway word, but it's actually a rare word at this time of Israel's history. It's a word that's Moshel in Hebrew. It's used of the early kings, like David and Solomon, who ruled well, that it was ditched in these later days of Israel. It was ditched the term Malek, king. It was ditched, why? Because the recent kings of Israel were kings by title only. They ruled by title only. You ever have a leader like that in your life? A boss like that in your life? Where they didn't truly lead, so they led by their title only. Right? They said, don't you know who I am? School of leadership. And that's how they led. They led from that. Just from their authority. Coming again for God's people will be a true Moshele who would lead their life, pay attention to daily habits, pay attention to how they treated each and every person, not just the people who would be advantageous to them. That's the leader that is coming. Such a ruler will come from Bethlehem, Africa. This was the birthplace and home, first home, of a young man named David. David was not born into royalty. Uh, he grew up in a small village, in this equally small district, doing the most humble of jobs. He was a shepherd. And as a shepherd, which consumed most of his life, as you can basically see in the Psalms, he would have learned 
valuable leadership skills. Not in order to become a leader. This is the Andrew Carnegie School of Leadership he's going to. He learned valuable leadership skills because he cared about the sheep whom he shepherded, whom he had been entrusted with. As a shepherd, he was responsible for supplying food and water, finding the best fields and streams. As a shepherd, he would have to help sheep who were helpless. He oftentimes, due to heavy fleece or pregnancy, sheep would lie down in the center of gravity, sheep in the stomach, and the sheep could no longer get up. And you can imagine the sheep saying, it's only because I have heavy fleece. Well, I'm just big boned it, right? I can't get up. Right? Check out how I'm up. He'd get stuck in random bushes. He would keep eating grass until a sheep would fall off a cliff. Literally, sheep would do this to documented cases of sheep being piled up when shepherds weren't looking off the overhanging cliff, facing perilous danger from enemies, wolves, and otherwise constantly. Shepherd had to watch out for sheep at all times. But it was also tough. Every shepherd learned how to wield a rod and a staff. That he spent hours practicing with his rod, learning how to wield it and throw it if necessary. How boss is that, right? That you're just out there in the field ninja style? That is you as a shepherd. With his main weapon against any threat is that rod. He used it. Just as we saw with Gantoff before I get there. Alright, anyway, as such, David grew up learning how to humbly rule the most wayward and helpless among all God's creatures, the sheep. He ruled as a shepherd king. He always had an eye towards the wayward and the helpless, even when he ruled over people. So when God talks in verse 2 about a new ruler who's coming forth from of old, from ancient of days, I don't like to say that he needs a turn to but really he's saying this people, You've seen this before. You've even idealized this kind of king. You've thought about it for centuries since he has died. A ruler who cares enough to rescue those of you who are wayward, who are helpless, or even hopeless. That's the kind of ruler that's going to arrive. And such a ruler has certainly arrived, my friends. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered just to his own town. And Joseph went also up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, in the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Because he was at the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Chapter 2. We can't be sure, but it was very unlikely that Joseph, who now lived in the north of Israel in Galilee, had ever before visited Bethlehem, which was located south of Jerusalem. It would have been about a 90, 70 miles to the crow five, probably a 90 mile path, a walking path to get down to Bethlehem. He would have just gone randomly to visit people just to go for weekends away or staycations at that time. Joseph and Mary would have only stayed one day for a census. So the odds of the census being taken, which took place usually once in a king's lifetime, and Mary getting work on that one day, were infinitesimally small. 
The odds were just infinitely so small. Yet, Matthew's Gospel points out the words of the prophet Micah had to be fulfilled. And so Jesus was born in Bethlehem on that one day. And he fled as a refugee to Egypt. He lived in Nazareth, where he grew up humbly. We're told, also by Luke, they grew up in wisdom and stature. Like they worked as a carpenter, being a southern carpenter, or studying habits, humbly obeyed, listened well. And even though he was king of the universe, he learned how to lovingly and humbly rule people. There are a few really great leaders of our time. These kinds of leaders I'm describing. Shepherd King Few, true, few like that. In fact, I hesitate even to mention them, but some of you argue that that person wasn't really that kind of leader, etc. David was one of those kinds of leaders. Rare style. David united diverse and divided people under his humble rule. He united. And people forget how divided the kingdom was still under Saul. David united them. Yet he did so not more than a decade. Verse 3 says that this new ruler, the rest of his brothers, shall return to the people of Israel. This new shepherd king will unite the people of God under his rule for multiple millennia. Consider, friends, the church. For, for all her warts, all her wrinkles, all her problems, they're going strong and growing strong for millennia time. Into the third. Because that's the influence that Jesus has had over people as a shepherd king. Look at verse 4. David shepherded his flock with strength. And during that, he heard opposition, and he heard that prayer with trust. This new shepherd king would do likewise. He frequently retreated to be alone with his father. And out of the strength of being with his father, compassion would flow to those who are like sheep without a shepherd. So Jesus would feed. He would heal and he would forgive such sheep. Such people. David was great in the ancient Near East for about three decades. Verse 4, this new shepherd king has become great to the ends of the earth. His reign has extended to people from the furthest east, in underground churches in China, all the way to posh homes in Orange County, California. Such are under the rule of King Jesus to the ends of the earth. And David brought an external peace and security to his people for a period of 12 years, and then another nine. And into his son Solomon's reign, the new shepherd king accomplishes relational peace and everlasting security by laying down his life for his sheep. It's a peace that will last forever. Security that will last forever. When we think about the long-standing troubles, the long-standing trouble in our lives, what do we ultimately want? What do we really ultimately want? We don't ultimately want political policies, public policies to help us. We don't ultimately want a group of people to give us counsel and encouragement, although it's nice to have along the way. We don't ultimately want platitudes like, this too shall pass, or there's a reason for everything. Ultimately, we want someone with the strength 
and humble love to rescue us out of our trouble. That's what we really want. On those difficult days, the things seem bleak and we're despair, we just want a rescuer. The strength and compassion to really take us out of our trouble. Can't underestimate this moment. John Muir, Scottish-American explorer and naturalist, he founded the uh, Sierra Club, lived out in the American West. Muir was not a Christian, uh, probably an atheist or deist. But in his book, Travels to Alaska, he writes extensively, he's very fascinated about these two tribes, the Thick Blanket and Sitka tribes, and Sitka and Blanket Indians, who end up being remarkably open to the Christian message. And he tells us why. It's because for a period of three decades, these two tribes, Sitka and Blanket, were in a bitter yet evenly contested war against each other. Such that women even men strayed away from these salmon streams and berry fields because although it was a source of food, it was also a source of assassination. They were easy pickings for someone to just be killed. Only way to get food. People began to starve. And so the flanking chief, he goes and approaches the sick chief saying, hey look, our people are starving and nothing to eat. We fall long enough. Let's make peace. Sick chief, though, wanted justice. And he says, Our people will soon starve too. But you have killed ten more of my tribe. And we have a yours. So give me ten blanket men to balance the blood account. Then we will make peace and go home. The blanket chief heard the proposal. He thought about it for a while. And he replied, Very well. You know my rank. You know that I, as Jesus tribe, work more than ten common men. Take me. Take me, ladies. The offer was accepted. And his men shot down the twinkle chief. Me. Near says that such people received the Christian message. Because such people, when they heard it, that the gospel were ready for it. Because they know a humble shepherd king when they see one. They have one in their chief. They saw one in Jesus Christ. Who offered certain and lasting peace by laying down a far more worthy life for theirs. It's a certain hope that's already been given to us, Jesus Christ. But Michael also tells us about a future hope. In verses 3 through 6. And I did say 3 through 6. And you might say there, I'm cheating. If you're following along in your bulletin, you might notice that I'm using verses 3 to 5 to talk about the certain already accomplished hope. And I'm using these verses also for my next point, which may sound like a preacher cheating. But such is the God's kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus Christ, that is already and not yet. There's an overlap to it. Notice all the shalls and the wills in verses 3 through 6. He shall give them up until the time. He shall stand and shepherd his flock. He shall, they shall dwell secure. He shall be great. Then we will raise against the seven shepherds. They, they shall shepherd the land of the sword. Jesus is the once and future king. I 
can't recall who it was, but when I was uh, back in uni, I remember hearing something from a, uh, a reading something from an agnostic professor. He was saying how all the old myths of the world, all the old stories about a returning king are just those. They're stories and they're myths. And yet they're also so true. What do you mean by that? All those old stories and myths about a great king returning, a great chief returning, whatever it might be, reveal something deep in us. That we need someone to return and rescue us. To make our outer reality match our inner longings. We, we feel like this is true. It must be true. We have this desire within us. Someone to come back for us. What myths and stories am I talking about? Let me give you two examples. Robin Hood, right? We will fight, we will struggle, we will even steal. Because things are so bad, that all will be better when King Richard returns, right? J.R.R. Tolkien, told you everyone again. He wrote a book, a famous book, the third of which in the series is The Return of the King. It's literally called The Return of the King. The king has gone away. He's coming back again. The most famous, or the longest of these legends, though, is the legend of the story of King Arthur. But when he died, it was written on his tombstone, Here lies the once and future king. And so there's this longing throughout history for people to have someone come back and to rescue them. That longing has to stop for us today, friends. Just because it's old doesn't mean it's not true. It makes it all the more true. Humanity still has it deep in their hearts. True even for Christians. Yes, Jesus has certainly come through faith in his death and resurrection. Peace with God has been accomplished. The inner peace comes because we belong to God. Everlasting security because nothing has separated us from the love of God. And yet we yearn deeply for our outer world to match this inner reality inside of us. We have this inner reality of peace, of security, of belonging, and we want our outer world to match that. And this is what God promises to his shepherd king to return in order to ultimately rescue us from all the external forces of this world. For Israel, that was, we can see here, he shall deliver us from the Assyrian. It was Assyrian for Israel. For you, it may be a sickness that oppresses you. Each time you feel like you crack the code health-wise, you just get sick or ill or hurt. And it's so frustrating. For you, it might be a lack of companionship, whether by unfulfilling friendship, a marriage void of intimacy, whatever it might be. Or it may be an undercurrent of prejudice that you've experienced in your life from others. Based on your nationality, your skin color, your gender, your age, your education. And you wish this kind of thing would end, and yet it does not. It's in there. It's a reason we long for all these old stories about the returning king, is because we are built to long for them. God built in us this inner longing for such a ruler and such a king to return. And someday, this outer world will match what's going on in the heart of every Christian. Peace, security, belonging. It's going to be wonderful. In a nutshell this morning, we were going to phrase from my message. Remember this. This is the message in a nutshell. 
God intervenes with a certain and future hope to transform us into spreaders of hope. People who spread hope. God intervenes in our life, certain future hope to make us into spreaders of hope. So, Notice that God is in this passage at a responsibility to those of us who have been rescued by King Jesus. Christians then, Christians are called to be spreaders of hope. Look at that with me in verses 7 through 9. And the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples like dew from the Lord, like showers of the grass which delay not for a man, nor wait for the children of man. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations in the midst of many peoples. Like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like the young lion among the flocks of sheep, which when it goes through, treads down and tears to pieces, none to deliver. Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries, your enemy shall be cut off. We do well to notice three things here. Three things here, just these short verses. Number one, we are called, Christians are called, to bless people with the hope. Verse 7, the remnant of Jacob, the people of the king, shall be in the midst of the people like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass. It's interesting because in Judaism, Judaism was a come and see religion. Jews were called to welcome the alien. There was even a place in the temple to welcome those from the outside. It's called the court of Gentiles. If you want to come in, if you want to see what's happening, come to the court of Gentiles. You can experience it for yourself. Yet there's a radical shift between Jesus who says, go tell. Go and send you out, to bring out the disciples, to bring out the apostles, to bring out you, to go and tell others about this hope. To live amongst the people, share with them the hope that you have. Number two, we are called to, it's the same thing we do on this, we, we are called to bless all peoples with the hope of Jesus. Notice in verse 8, the remnant of Jacob, the people of the king, shall be among the nations. Amidst many peoples. And that's what advantage you have of living in Grand Canyon, right? Grand Canyon had 120 different countries represented. We have an opportunity every day when we work, when we live, when we play to do it, to share the scope that we have, to defer a multi ethnic kingdom right here, right now. Number three thing we do well notice in these three verses is this this hope in Jesus, this message about hope in Jesus will bless some. That will judge others. Say again, it's going to bless some and judge others. Notice in verse 7, the message of hope is received like dew and rain on dry ground. People are thirsty for it. They want it. They've been looking for you to come along and share this message of hope. But in verse 8, the same message acts upon people like a lion. The gospel message judges those who hear it and yet reject it. Paul goes on to explain this phenomenon. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 15 through 16. He says this about our lives. This is kind of fulfilling these verses. Our lives are a fragrance presented by Christ to God, but this fragrance is perceived differently by those being saved and by those perishing. For those who are perishing, we are a fearful smell. A fearful smell of death and doom. And there's judgment. But to those who are being saved, we are a life-giving perfume. Some will think hope for rescuer is offensive. The very idea that you're helpless and hopeless is intrinsically offensive to many of us. And to many you will encounter tips, advice, counsel, we might accept those things. But our 
rescuer? Somebody's going to say, my life is a shambles and I'm in need of saving? Others will find this idea foolish. Even the notion that God exists that would allow such pain and suffering and heartache in this world, even though through Jesus, God was willing to take his own medicine as work to experience pain and heartache to the uttermost on the cross. Our responsibility is not to rescue the person, but to share the hope we have in Jesus Christ. What does that look like? What does that really look like? We get to offer a progressive hope. Quite simply, we get to share with people, guess what? The king has come, and he's going to come again. What's on the inside of me, the peace, the security, the strength, the belonging, will one day that be matched by the world outside of me. If Jesus is coming. Maybe we can just predict the way it might be coming. The same kind of hope. God said that the world would give us trouble. He promised a savior from a tiny village called Bethlehem. And 700 years later, God delivered that promise, which tells us the best is truly yet to come. Why then shall we not trust Him? He's already proven Himself faithful. Why wouldn't you want to be part of that? Part of that present and part of that future. I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, actor Andrew Garfield uh, and his most recent movie, uh, Still in Silence, which is based on 19. 66 novel. Mark Scorsese directed the movie Silence. This movie's about two missionaries who travel to Japan searching for their uh, missing mentor. I haven't actually seen it yet. Have any of you guys seen this movie? Raise your hand. Just curious. Literally no one. Okay, well, that's good. Could be interesting. Keep your interest. <laughs> I'm not promoting this film, but I'm not getting a slice of it on the side or anything. All right. I read this fascinating interview with Garfield, and I'd like to read it for you as I close here. He said, films were really, were really my church. They've always been my church. That is where I felt sued. That's where I felt most of myself. But in preparation for this film, I'm breaking from what he said here. In film, Garfield practiced something called the spiritual exercises of Ignatius. And, and these spiritual exercises are rich, and very rich in the Bible, especially the Gospels about Jesus. Matthew, Mark, and John. And while he never claims to have trusted Jesus, Clearly, Garfield was certainly going to change on what seemed to be at least an introduction to Jesus. Here's what he said. What was really easy was falling in love with this person. Was falling in love with Jesus Christ. That was the most surprising thing. I felt so bad for Jesus and angry on his behalf. But I finally did meet him. Because everyone has given him such a bad name. So many people have given him such a horrible name. And he's been used for many different things. Here's where it's more fascinating. Beneath this longing, he carried deep insecurity that many of us share, or at least one time she Garfield continued to say, the main thing I wanted to heal that I brought to Jesus was this feeling of not enoughness. This feeling that for this forever wanted the perfect expression of the same inside of each of us. This wound of not enoughness, that wound of, of feeling like what I have to offer is never not a Christian. Or not Jesus. When Garfield was confronted with Jesus, he was also confronted by not enoughness in the presence of Jesus. Yet no one has yet told him about the hope of Jesus. That through his death and resurrection, Jesus makes it possible for you to be enough in God's sight. Just by trusting him. 
Now, friends, they may not get interviewed or get as vulnerable as Dorothy, but there are such people out there when we work, when we live, when we play, who know that something is not right, who are hopeless and helpless, who feel like they are not enough. And they need to hear the hope that you have in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we acknowledge that we live in this world of trouble. Hopeless, long-standing trouble. And many of us find ourselves in that today. And so, you are speaking through my head to us this morning that we have a certain hope and a future hope in this shepherd king, in this returning king. We can know for sure that you've rescued us and given us peace, security, strength. And yet one day when you return, that inner reality will be matched by an outer world and restored forever. God, encourage us, equip us, inspire us. Please help us to spread such hope among the nations, among the peoples. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.